1: Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs.
2: Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We have learned many things from folks in the past. We've learned that infections can cause inflammation and oxidative stress, and these set the groundwork for our path toward various chronic diseases. Speakers have even told us that occult infections can be risks for heart disease. Also, many speakers have talked about the autoimmune diseases, which are increasingly prevalent in the Western community. Uh, We have learned that any foreign protein or substance in the gut can trigger these, and we've learned that even such chemicals such as plastics, heavy metals, food dyes, gluten, microbes, can set off this chain of events, which certainly increase our chronic risk load. So where do we start in this puzzle of all these autoimmune diseases and all these things that contribute to it? Where do we start? Well, today we'll look at one piece of this puzzle, the piece of uh, infections and how this fits into the puzzle and maybe how we can address this particular part of the puzzle. With us today, we have Anthony Haynes, who is an expert in this area. He's been in private practice over 25 years and has been one of the most experienced registered nutritional therapists in the UK. He's one of the first practitioners to implement the principles of functional medicine in the UK. He's been doing this since 1994, before most of us even heard of this. He's a true pioneer. He's been teaching 25 years, including at a variety of nutritional colleges ION, CNELM, BCNH, CNM. And also in the IFM in the USA. Also, he's involved with Neutralink, a company he founded in 1998. And they have a lot of very interesting uh, programs that they put on for the community. He's presented lectures, seminars, and courses on a wide variety of these subjects over the years. In particular, he's been studying the connection between viruses, bacteria, and the roles in the pathogenesis of autoimmune diseases. He is known as a practitioner's practitioner. He employs his clinical practice in managing nutritional needs of his patients, which number over 15,000 at his clinic, the Nutrition Clinic Limited on Harley Street in London. He's also a successful award-winning author of two books on nutrition, The Insulin Factor, published in 2004, and The Food Intolerance Bible, published in 2005 in the UK, Taiwan, Romania, etc., He's appeared on numerous television and radio shows. And in 2011, he was awarded the prestigious CAM Magazine Award for Outstanding Practice for his many years educating, inspiring, motivating, and helping practitioners and patients. So welcome, Anthony. It's quite an honor to have you on our show.
3: Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, thanks for that glowing, um, glowing introduction. Thank you.
2: Well, I don't think it's enough because you've been doing this long before most of us thought of this. It, it
3: you know, it feels like you know. It, it's a very good point. And technically, if you look at the, the years, yes, I did start to implement these things actually in 1990 and then formally in 1994. But it feels like it feels like I and maybe the movement. Um, it's just getting started. It's strange, isn't it? It's, it's 25 years in the in the, uh, in the doing, but actually still feels fresh. Fascinating still to this day. And I'm a complete nutrition nerd. And, um, and I feel like I'm just getting started. So another 25 years to go at least.
2: Well, I hope to help in that endeavor, and I love nutrition nerds. So let's get started. What is autoimmunity?
3: Well, it's a good question. Autoimmunity, it's a... It's a it, Disease arises from an inappropriate immune response of the body against other substances and tissues normally present in the body. So the body attacks part of itself, and it's a mistake. So it perceives part of the body as a bug or a pathogen and attacks its own cells. So it's a mistake.
2: Wow. And so once you attack your own body cells, that can tear your body apart and cause all sorts of havoc. So how common is this? So how common is this?
3: Well, you know, it's it's actually massive, and if I share share with you and the listeners uh, a number of the conditions, I think we'll get a, a glimpse of just how how big an issue it is. There are over 80 classified autoimmune diseases right now, but there may be as many as ever 200 in total uh, that may also be autoimmune. Conditions. In fact, it's such, some people believe the heart disease is actually an autoimmune condition as well. So let me share with you some of the common names um, of autoimmunity. Because autoimmunity in itself, no one walks around saying, I have autoimmunity. They say, I have multiple sclerosis, or I have lupus, or I have rheumatoid arthritis, or I've got psoriasis, or I'm celiac, or I've got celiac disease. Uh, one of the most common ones is autoimmune thyroid condition called Hashimoto's. Individuals could have type 1 diabetes. That's an autoimmune condition. Sjogren's syndrome, That Venus Williams Williams has Sjogren's syndrome. And the commentators on tennis are always talking about how well she's doing at 37 and she's still doing amazing things. She's got the Wimbledon final and she has Sjogren's syndrome. Psychoidosis, scleroderma. Those are some of the names of the most common autoimmune conditions I think that, that readers, listeners may have heard about. They estimate that that the numbers of individuals who have these conditions number probably equivalent to or greater than those suffering from cancer and or heart disease. Uh, In this way, it's actually believed that it it could be, because a lot of these conditions may not even be diagnosed, whereas cancer and heart disease may be more readily diagnosed, it could well be the number one cause of morbidity, which is suffering, and mortality, which is death, in the industrialized world.
2: Well, Dr. Vajani estimated that 53 million people have this and up to 7 to 10% of our population. He also... Believes it's on the rise. Why
3: do you think that's happening? Yeah, and I agree. And I, I've actually had the pleasure of knowing Dr. Vojchodyni for about 25 years as well, actually. Um, and he's a legend in in our lifetimes. Uh, and made a, such a fantastic contribution to this at uh, this arena. So um, all held to him. I think the reason that, that it's arising is because of all the common industrialized phenomena, such as environmental toxins, the diminished host immune system due to stress. I mean, even since gaslight, Susan, we've got we've had less sleep. So fascinating statistic is i believe in the last 80 to 100 years mankind is getting one hour less sleep than we were getting i mean is a big issue but certainly if you diminish sleep you increase this sense of sympathetic on which is the stress factor um my grandfather had the uh, amazing he had 106 years of his life 106 years old when he died in 2011 so born in 1905 he was too young for the first world war he was too old for the Second World War, which probably explains why he made it through to 106. But he didn't. He didn't use the word stress. Stress was a word that was created in the 1950s based on railway girders bending, so it was metal fatigue. But they talked about anxiety and so on. But when I talked to him about his life. The bell rang at work at 5 p.m., and you went home. You couldn't stay on. Um, so, so that gives an, a taste of what went on before. So I think modern living, uh, modern environmental toxins, there are 80,000 um, toxins that are introduced to the, to the planet uh, within, a, within a period of time. 200,000 toxins have been identified in, in Europe. So there's a huge burden of toxicity. And also, with regard to the infectious agents, they've also had longer to multiply and colonize and have generations to adapt and survive. And we've also had the antibiotic revolution uh, since the Second World War, which has significantly had a negative impact on our gut microbiome. Just for example, Susan, if I may press on with this point, one course of antibiotics has been shown and could affect the health for the rest of your life.
2: Wow. So our
3: immune system has become dented by a number, a series of different events. So it's, it's really going to be one thing, and obviously we've got a focal point for today's conversation. But uh, a number of things ganging up on us: the lack of sleep, too much stress. We've got electromagnetic frequencies, toxins, um, you know, compromised immunity. I was taken to a measles party when I was young. I was taken to a mumps party when I was young. I was taken to a chickenpox party when I was young. Why? So I could catch the conditions and then and gain natural immunity from them. That doesn't happen today.
2: Yeah, I remember getting all those diseases as well. Those are the good old days. So why do women have this condition more than men, do you think? Oh, uh,
3: that's a brilliant question. I actually, I've actually, uh, funny enough, I've actually prepared a, a document on that. And what's fascinating is that, uh, that's a brilliant question. Why do why do women? It's not the estrogens. So it's not Asians, although it is fascinating about testosterone. So in rheumatoid arthritis, it's about 8 to 1, 7 to 1 women getting that more than men. And and in rheumatoid arthritis, it's believed to be by a professor who spent 30 years examining this at King's College, and I might talk about it a bit later as well, Professor Annan Ebringer. He identified that there was a hidden bacterial infection in the urinary tract, given that the anatomy of a woman's urinary tract is different to a man, and they're more likely to have this phenomenon occur within their urinary tract. It's the antibodies to the hidden bacteria in the urinary tract, which actually drives rheumatoid arthritis in women more than men. But that only occurs in rheumatoid arthritis. It doesn't occur in MS. It doesn't occur in other things. So it's uh, another, other reasons that are as follows. Two other big reasons, it seems, from the researchers who've really plumbed the depths to try and get an answer to this. The, it seems that the bacteria in our gut, to come back to the gut again, are strongly influenced by testosterone. Testosterone has a very protective role for the bacteria, and the gut bacteria, and certain gut bacteria can make more testosterone, amazingly. So it seems that testosterone, the higher the testosterone, i.e. if one's male versus female, you have a protective effect against autoimmunity. So it's actually a testosterone rather than estrogen, which offers a protective effect. In animal studies, they took testosterone and they, they actually basically effect, uh, provided the gut microbiome with testosterone in an in, um, animal model and it completely protected those animals from autoimmunity whereas their, uh, their, their their brothers and sisters effectively um got the autoimmune condition but when they had testosterone in their gut they didn't so that's a really fascinating thing, the gut microbiome story and then another really important reason why women get uh, up to eight times more than men so it's a, it's a it's another bad luck story for women who deserve medals for so many things um, it's the immune response to the acute and the chronic immune response seems to be different in women to men. So, in fact, the immunologists conducting the study said you should study women only and men only with regard to certain things. It seems that men have a a fulminant kind of full-on acute reaction to something, and then then it passes. But in women, it seems to be the immune response tends to be more chronic, low-grade. So it's low-grade inflammation over time, and that seems to be a driver of autoimmunity compared to a full-on sort of short-burst immune response, and then it it dies down. So to the very same challenge, women appear to have a different immune response to men. So fascinating.
2: So how can we use that as women uh, to help us against autoimmune disease? I mean, how can we use the testosterone factor or the fact that we have chronic low-grade infections inflammation? Yep. Is it more well, important I,
3: I, to seek out so the, the third, cause? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and, uh, and it's the sort of thing the researchers said, said that on the last line of their paper, that we need to do more research on this just to know how to make it practically relevant to the population. And I, I'm, I'm going to give you a slight cop-out on the testosterone. I don't know how one could engage that. But in terms of the chronic low-grade infection is that uh, for women who have a low-grade infection, it may be impossible for them to know they've got it. That's, that's important. So this information you're going to share with other people now, um, I believe is absolutely vital because you can take natural remedies to help to counteract the low-grade chronic inflammation, which is what I'm doing in clinical practice, and then helping people to ameliorate their symptoms, manage their condition, and even in some cases, not have their condition anymore.
2: So, uh, in your approach, I assume first you have to identify what's causing the low-grade inflammation. Uh, yes. And are uh, you looking mostly at uh, in, uh, infections, bacteria, viruses, or many causes of low-grade inflammation, toxins, many.
3: Yes, you're so, right. And, and this brings me to, to actually share with you the, the typical main causes that are appreciated in the the functional medicine world of autoimmunity, and I think um, this has been summarized, and and if I may share that with you, is genetic susceptibility. So there needs to be some sort of inherited genetic susceptibility to have it, i.e. not everybody that's faced with the following things I'll talk about will actually necessarily get autoimmunity. They could end up with heart disease from the same causes, which is an inflammatory process. Secondly, the, the pr- there needs to be a barrier permeability and that, that links to what's called leaky gut syndrome or intestinal permeability is too great and there can also be a blood-brain barrier issue or there could be a broken barrier of some kind in the skin and or the lungs but usually it's got to do with the gut lining and hence leaky gut's been touted and certainly it's, 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 in, it's in our vernacular now that leaky gut contributes to autoimmunity and I believe that's true And thirdly, there needs to be an environmental trigger, such as the food protein of gluten, and gluten is probably the most famous food that is difficult to to digest. It can elicit inflammatory immune reactions, and different parts of the gluten molecule can be something to which we can react to, and that can mean one can end up with celiac or or gluten sensitivity, or even not formally gluten sensitivity, but you can react to different parts of gluten, which can then actually end up, meaning you make antibodies to that protein, and and the protein might resemble a tissue in the human body so that's called molecular mimicry, and then the antibodies attack that tissue in the body. You could also have the presence of toxins, and the toxins bound to proteins that tend to be the issue, and that's something that Cyrex labs are actually examining in terms of testing, Um, and or you could have an infection, which we're going to talk more about, a bacteria or a virus, and what is uncanny, I mean, it's just a complete bad luck story, or is it, is that the antigen, so the part of the bacteria or the virus that presents itself to the immune system, it is very, very similar or can be very similar to different tissues in the body. And so the immune system does exactly what it's trained to do, which is develop an antibody or have an immune response to that particular protein sequence called an antigen um, or an epitope. And unfortunately, in in the noise of the battle of living life and inflammation and stress it makes a mistake, and there are parts of the body that look almost almost identical, not identical, to that particular antigen. And so then the immune system, having attacked that bacteria, let's say, with, with regard to that urinary tract infection bacteria that I referred to in rheumatoid arthritis, it's Proteus mirabilis. And Alan Ebringer, the professor that I met in Seattle seven or eight years ago, um, he has been studying this for years and years and years. The antigen of the Proteus mirabilis He's conducted molecular studies on this subject. It, the reason we end up with tissue damage in the rheumatoid arthritis is because we have antibodies to protease mirabilis he maintains. Uh, and then there is this other environmental factor called stress. So I, I'll, I'll summarize. You've got genetic susceptibility. You've got a barrier permeability problem. And then you have an environmental trigger, which could be one or more of the food protein reactivity, gluten, casein, other foods, toxins, infections such as bacteria and virus, and or the trigger could be environmental stress.
2: Wow, it seems like we can't win in modern society. I'd like to make a couple of comments. I I think it's a challenge, and I I
3: think that's why uh, there are so many millions of people that are are suffering, unfortunately, and the age where the onset of autoimmunity rather heart disease is coming down and down, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, I'd like to make a couple of comments. Like when you've got a permeable blood-brain barrier, all sorts of unpleasant things can go right in your brain and cause all sorts of havoc, and could really lead to cognitive problems in the future. And another Absolutely. interesting thing, like uh, as, as Anthony was saying about gluten, this gluten's got at least eight components to it, so you just can't measure the anti gliadin antibody as what you'd get in a normal uh, physician visit. But you know, parts of the gluten look exactly like the islet cells in the pancreas, so you can get uh, lead to diabetes, you have, similar to the McKinsey cells in the cerebellum, so there's something called gluten ataxia, where you have trouble with balance. And also, it can uh, gluten is similar to the cells in the thyroid, so a lot of people with Hashimoto's might have an undiagnosed sensitivity to gluten and not know about it. But exactly. let's get back to the-
3: Bang on, thank you for sharing that.
2: Let's get to the infections, because that's what's so fascinating about your recent research. So uh, tell us how infections fit into this puzzle.
3: Yeah, and, and uh, I will. And I heard this originally from Professor Alan Ebringer, mentioning his name again, from King's College. I discovered he works about, he did used to work. He's a professor emeritus now, because he's getting on. Um, and he has been studying this area for, I mean, 35 to 40 years, looking at uh, infections that lead to... Um, or. Ankylosing spondylitis, which is a spinal issue, like like RA, but specifically linked to the spine, um, and rheumatoid arthritis. And I met him and in Seattle. I came back to England. It was like a Jack and the Beanstalk story. It's a mythic, and the mythic attributes. I went miles away from home. I picked up information. I brought it back to my community and found that it had benefit within that community. The very first patient that I saw was actually a man rather than a woman with, with RA. And I showed him the papers. Um, uh, Professor Ebringer and he said well I don't want a methotrexate or steroids and I said well that, that's your choice, I, I can't tell you not to take those because I'm not a doctor and he said well I'm, I'm going I'm to get my doctor's advice about how to reduce those medications and I'm going to follow your line of thought that I've got this proteus tell me what to do to, to get rid of it with natural means and then we'll see and it, it transpired over a relatively few months that his symptoms went away of his basically very sore hands um, and feet and knees, and it was stopping him doing his work. Now, this is a man who'd been a director of a, of an engineering company, and he, he'd semi-retired, but he was he was taking on small projects, and he would get his hands-on, he'd love the hands-on work with his building and engineering and that, and that kind of activity, and he, it was stopping him in his life. And um, within six months, he was completely symptom-free. He went back to the rheumatologist who diagnosed him, and the rheumatologist said he was free of RA, and then when the man said, well,
1: you know, it's interesting
3: because I, I actually didn't take the medications. I, I actually, I, I killed this bug apparently called Proteus with his anti, anti, natural antibiotics. Uh, and the doctor refused to believe that he ever had rheumatoid arthritis, but he was the very doctor that had diagnosed him. So it was an interesting story. Um, and he became free of our race. This is my very first patient uh, seven years ago on the autoimmune scale with my appreciation new appreciation, that infectious agents led to these things. And then I've discovered that the amount of research on these, these, this issue is it, it, phenomenal. There are tens and tens of papers that go back years and years. So for this conversation, Susan, I've actually done a little bit of swatting, uh, the English word for revision, I guess, and I've discovered that back in the 1980s uh, there were papers that were looking at uh, to see whether antiviral antibodies could then actually attack normal tissues. This was the carrot, and there's a 1986 paper that I could refer to. 1986, this work was done. And yet, most practitioners that, I mean, I was trained for three years in this area, and I've spoken to immunologists, the medical doctors who are immunologists, they haven't heard of this either. But since that time, there have been papers on papers on tens and tens of papers that have highlighted the connection between a bug, and there are lots of different bugs potentially, and an autoimmune condition. So there's uh, masses and masses of research. But as I've discovered in my functional medicine nutritional therapy career, um, even if the truth were to be written about a thousand times, it doesn't mean to say it reaches conventional medicine nor reaches the public knowing.
2: Yes, it seems that uh, the practice in uh, a physician's office typically is about 20 years behind the research, which is sad. So that's why we have this radio show to fill in that gap.
3: I agree, yes.
2: The question I have is: What is the mechanism? Is it that the antibodies against the particular bacteria or virus attack the body, or is the bacteria or virus climb onto a piece of protein, and the antibodies go after that, and then molecular mimicry gets these antibodies confused, so they go after body parts? How does yeah, this happen?
3: That, yeah, it's it's very good, and I, I hope I can give it the the main things that go on. I think there are seven or eight different phenomena that occur, and I think you've got you've got Two things, probably the, the majority of the reasons as to why infections can contribute in a major way, and my assertion is that they actually are the single most important thing to address. That's, that's my stance, and the evidence of my patients getting better and doing better is evidence of that. I'm sure there's many ways to address the condition, uh, and everything's multifactorial, but I found that the hidden infection is often the most important thing over and above the toxicity factor, and I have colleagues who maintain that they believe toxicity is the biggest driver, and that's fine. I mean, As long as patients get better, um, I don't care. And so what happens is there are two fundamental reasons to answer your question. Number one is the molecular mimicry. The antigen, so the bit of the protein of the bug... Um, actually resembles a part of the human tissue. And I'll give you, I'll give you three basic examples quickly on this one. Number one, the, the antigen to proteus mirabilis in the urinary tract, the bit of protein, resembles a specific type of collagen in the hands and the feet and possibly a little bit elsewhere in the body. So you end up with rheumatoid arthritis. It's the antibodies to the proteus that actually drive that. So that's, that's number one. Number two, Klebsiella pneumoniae is a bacteria found in the gut and the antibodies to that, particularly if you've got a certain genetic disposition of, a, of an HLA type, um, HLA-B27, and the Klebsiella, that means that the an antigen resembles another type of collagen that is in your spine. And so the immune system attacks that part of the spine. A third example is a small bacteria which acts like a virus in a way because it's hidden and much smaller than usual bacteria. Chlamydia pneumoniae, which again is off the lung, not the other chlamydia. Chlamydia pneumoniae, and the antigen that presents itself to the immune system is very similar to the myelin basic protein. So this is it I found that about 95 90% of the patients I have with multiple sclerosis have antibodies to chlamydia or, or a different response to chlamydia pneumoniae. So that's the molecular mimicry. So the body's mistaking um, the myelin basic protein or the collagen in the back or the collagen in the fingers for chlamydia pneumoniae, plebsidine pneumoniae, and proteus mirabilis, respectively. Now, the second reason why infections generate autoimmunity is the bystander activation process, is that they actually create uh, an environment that, Promotes inflammation and disrupts immune activity, and promote and just simply promotes that that sort of uh, the wrong environment. It's fundamentally an inflammatory one, which means that uh, the body f- begins to uh, maladapt and make a mistake, and makes makes antibodies to itself. I believe there is a factor, and certainly with toxins, the toxins can bind to the protein. It's actually the toxin binding to the protein that gets attacked, um, and. So that's a third mechanism. I believe those are the major mechanisms how infections can drive autoimmunity.
2: We're coming to a break now. So, Anthony and I will be right back after the break with more to follow.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to DrSusan at OccupyHealth.com. That's DrSusan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: Welcome back. This is Occupy Health. Dr. Susan with Anthony Haynes. Uh, We were talking about how infections can set off various autoimmune disease. For example, Epstein-Barr virus, and I believe the herpes virus, has been associated a lot with Hashimoto's, which is also associated with gluten sensitivity. So, so many pieces of this puzzle. So, looking at the infection piece of this puzzle, how do we identify which particular bugs we have? Because we can have so many, and how do we identify what we've got?
3: Yeah, that's a brilliant question because it's like there's a whole array of them. In fact, in terms of the bacteria and viruses, actually they're probably too numerous to read out, but I, w- I will read out a few, and then I'll highlight for you and, your, and the listeners as to which ones are the most common, um, because there are some real drivers, I'd say with a capital D, of the of this infectious autoimmune um, situation. So let me share with you some of these names of bugs that could be a contributing factor for autoimmunity, and then I'll highlight the ones that are the most relevant. So <clears throat> blastocystis hominis is an amoeba parasite not everyone with that in the stool test needs to be treated but that's a, that's a possible one the, the well-known candida albicans but also other yeasts citrobacter bacteria could be um there's a parasite called the entamoeba fragilis another one called endolimax nana there's another one called entamoeba histolytica. Uh, giardia even Um, Helicobacter pylori, the, the bacteria in the stomach, the Barry Marshall, the Australian, got laughed out of court for saying it contributed to ulcers. He infected himself with H. pylori, gave himself ulcers, took antibiotics, cured himself and then it presented the information. So he and a colleague won the Nobel Prize in Physiology for his discovery on H. pylori, but it can also drive autoimmunity, particularly of Hashimoto's, in fact, the H. pylori. And there are lots of different strains of H. pylori, so not all of them are driving that process. There are certain enteroviruses, which we'll learn more and more about. Did you know, Susan, we have at least 2,000 viruses in our virome, not microbiome, but our virome and our gut? And then I refer back to Klebsiella pneumonia I mentioned before, linking with ankylos and spondylitis. The Proteus mirabilis bacteria, which is in the urinary tract, which can generate and really promote rheumatoid arthritis. And then the Staphylococcus pyogenes, which can be linked with psoriasis. And then there's Chlamydia pneumonia I mentioned before, which is actually in the lung. And there's mycoplasma and pneumonia as well, which can be linked to neurological autoimmune conditions because those antigens present themselves as if they're a protein in the nervous system so that the immune system attacks the nervous system and you can end up with lesions in the brain. In fact, in recent studies, you can actually do a search on this. When I was at the Dynamic Brain Conference in L.A. where I had a nice conversation with you, they, they showed that bacteria can produce a lesion in two, two days. And you can see a lesion uh, lesion in an MRI scan. Amazing. And then -hmm. then there's the famous Epstein-Barr virus, um, which was actually associated. It was formally identified as a virus that can actually cause cancer in 1964. But not everyone with Epstein-Barr virus, of course, by any means, will have cancer. So I'm not scaring anybody with that if they've got Epstein-Barr virus, but a very small percentage of individuals with EBV. So it's called the Epstein-Barr virus paradox because so many people have it but not everyone has cancer and similarly with autoimmunity there are so many people who have it but they, no one really knows that it's a main driver for autoimmunity particularly when it's in tandem with another of its family member, this herpes family member, the herpes family uh, the viruses are the most common and bountiful around the earth and that the other one's called HHV6, human herpes virus 6. Interestingly and, and many people don't know this, is the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV is, no, is actually technically human herpes virus 4. And then there's uh, other, other, other HHVs, but the, the most common ones to cause autoimmunity are these. It's the Klebsiella pneumoniae for ankylosing spondylitis. It's the Proteus mirabilis for rheumatoid arthritis. It's Steptococcus pyogenes for psoriasis. H. Pylori, Hashimoto's, pneumoniae, <laughs> and Mycobacterium pneumoniae with neurological um, autoimmune conditions such as MS and transverse myelitis, and anything to do with the neurological system. Epstein-Barr probably prevalent for almost any condition, but particularly also Hashimoto's and lupus. And HHV6 again probably probably all of them, literally. And I find HHV6, and maybe your readers would have, uh, so listeners would have heard it here first. I maintain, I take the stance from having studied it and, and read about it and looked at websites that are dedicated for HHV6, it's probably the single darndest critter there is.
2: Wow. So... There you go. Uh, so.
3: And then you asked the question, didn't you, about how you tested these things. Well, there are the, I think I think we're testing in, in the future, things are going to become even more accurate. But And Dr. Vojdani has been pioneering some of this testing, too. And his opinion is that HHV6 is probably one of the most dominant negative viruses for promoting autoimmunity as well. I I had that conversation with him a couple of years ago. So uh, there are antibody testing, and so it's it's straightforward antibodies, and there are different types of antibodies, and you can have an IgA and IgM test, and there's an IgG test. The IgA and the IgM are current infections, so that's here and now, current infection, and that, that could mean that you're contagious, so the IgA... IgM current infection and you typically won't necessarily have a raised IgG with a current infection and the current infection again could be something you have just caught and it could be a, it could be a factor i have found though that the vast majority of individuals who i have tested who have an autoimmune condition have a raised IgG response And this means that it's historical, it's uh, not active, it's not contagious, it's not activated, don't worry about it, it's completely fine. But this, this I think, is one of the biggest mistakes in terms of immunology with regard to viruses and bacteria, is that the raised IgG is not benign. It simply means you're not contagious. So there's a, it's a really important language thing. It's an IgG historical thing. Don't worry about it. You know, um, I mean, you can't get rid of viruses, but you can get rid of bacteria. So I think viruses will remain in the body for life, although maybe that will change in, in the years to come as I explore new means of helping to clear them from the system, but they, they're dormant. So we can catch them in our at, at primary school, nursery school. So 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, we can catch the, all these bugs, and then we, we deal with it. So it, you don't have a fulminant fever and sort of immune, immune fever and immune attack and become uh, ill with the viral infection. It's a chronic low-grade infection where it's your body's still making antibodies to it.
2: So what so do I you recommend the- that we go find all the bugs we have in our body and where we do that? Or we, is there a test to find out which ones are stirring up the trouble and causing the autoimmunity? What yeah. do you recommend for testing? And yeah. then I'd like to know what we do for treatment.
3: Yes, it's it's a very good point. I mean, given that it all costs money and money doesn't grow on trees, um, you know, there are are screening tests, and I know Cyrix Labs has one screening test for a whole array of them, but that, that, you know, that has a certain cost. If you had psoriasis, all right, I would choose looking to antibodies to streptococcus pyogenes, pyogenes, P-Y-O. G-E-N-E-S, I would also look for the Epstein-Barr virus and H-H-V-6. So I would say categorically in any autoimmune condition, I would look for Epstein-Barr virus and H-H-V-6. If I had um, psoriasis, I'd go for that particular bacteria, streptococcus pyogenes. If I had a patient with ankylosing spondylitis, I would look for Klebsiella pneumoniae antibodies, and I would look for Epstein-Barr virus and H-H-V-6. If I met someone with MS, I'd have them do a chlamydia pneumonia, mycoplasma and pneumoniae antibody test and and I would do epstein bar virus and H H V six. You get the point. You actually need uh, I rather than doing the whole array of them, which might be a more costly endeavor, it might be a value to actually study a little bit about which ones are most likely. But I have to say the herpes virus family are something that I would look at and particularly Epsom bar virus and H H V six. Now
2: for Hashimoto's, for example, you go after the herpes six and the Epstein Barr virus, yeah. anything yeah. else? And
3: then I you know, depending on the on our digestive symptoms, certainly if there's any any indication of H. pylori, I would look to rule that one out as well. Um, so there could be a mixture of bacteria and viruses involved. Now there are there are it's important to share with you in terms of the testing. there's another testing method. So the Antibodies is a humoral immune response, so it's an acquired immune response, and that's what the antibody measures. It's a humoral response. And uh, after you've been exposed to something for a while, your body manufactures these antibodies. But the first response might be a T-cell response. And, in fact, there's now something called an ELISPOT lymphocyte transformation test, ELISPOT testing, which can look at the cellular. So it's a T-cell, T-immune cell response. And it tells you the sort of degree of reactivity, which is actually also brilliant for retesting because it can actually be something that can be, can be reduced in time, and you can tell how well your treatment is working. The uh, FDA have approved a number of different bugs that can be tested for in this manner. Not all bugs have an LTT or an LSPOT test for them. And so but Epstein-Barr virus, the herpes simplex virus, the one that causes cold sores, does, and the varicella zoster does, the shingles virus does too, and so does chlamydia pneumoniae, and so does a few other bacteria, but there are 12 in total that have um, uh, accredited Elispot testing for them, and so if you, if you can get access to that testing alongside antibody testing, you can get a much better gauge of the success of the program, but also I've had many patients where the antibodies have been completely normal, below the reference range, so there's no indication of activity on the immune level to them, and this is really important, Susan, but they have a rate, a really high level and or just be a raised level on the Ellispot testing. And so it can be completely missed that you have a reaction to, let's say, Epstein-Barr virus or the herpes simplex virus. And that there, there is a raised Ellispot test reflecting you absolutely have a T-cell response to these bugs. But you don't have an antibody response to them, showing that the immune system is not operating on a perfect level.
2: That's pretty exciting. So, you know, other than the Ellis spot test, one way to do it is maybe do the Cyrix test and see where your IgGs are high. And then in those cases, you can look to see if the, you know, do the test to see if those bugs are active.
3: Yeah, the Sarex panel. Um, there's a certain they call them arrays at Sarex Labs, and there's an array, the new one, which is looking at the autoantibody profile. Looks at the most common bugs that might elicit an autoimmune response, and that's looking at the IgG and IgA combined response. And that certainly for I think for listeners, certainly in the US, would be a first port of call. Um, the more you get into in, into the subject, you might be able to narrow it down. Um, but I think I think the I have access, fortunately, especially through German labs. Um, which obviously those in the U.S. won't be able to. So maybe maybe it's worthwhile somehow finding out what air-to-spot testing is available in the USA, because I believe that's a it's a very useful test. But first things first, the Cyrex array would be a, a great place to start.
2: And so, where does one get this Ellis test?
3: The Ellis Spot test is available through two German labs that I'm aware of, and I haven't looked beyond that because I've had access to it. Thank you very much. And so I've been able to access it there, whereas I don't work in the USA, and I haven't had a need to. So forgive me for not preparing that information before this call for your listeners, but I think it's going to be um, – hopefully someone will be able to get, it, get access to that kind of testing through a lab in the States.
2: Well, we do have British listeners as well and German That's listeners. Fantastic. Right. Well,
3: the British listeners can gain access to these labs.
2: Um,
3: there's, a, there's a lab agent called Regenerous Laboratories, um, and they gain access to the German lab I'm talking about.
2: Okay. Now, once we find out what bug we have, what do we do? I mean, you've got some treatments that sound very natural and
3: uh, exciting. So what do we do? Yeah. That, that of course is the next stage and the vital stage it's sort of showing the evidence that something's there and of course that test doesn't prove that it's linked with the autoimmune condition, it's the research and the clinical experience which tells us that so again I'll repeat that, just because you've got a positive result and you have an, an autoimmune condition it doesn't mean that one caused the other but what I've found in my experience is that the bug is the most important thing to deal with. Now sure if I had someone come along and there was a massively high score for certain toxins well of course I'd be looking at addressing that as well but generally speaking I find the virus, in particular, versus bacteria, but also some bacteria like the chlamydia pneumoniae, like the mycoplasma pneumoniae, need to be addressed as the absolute priority. And so I would use natural antiviral agents in the first instance to deal with the viruses. Now, I use, although there's no fixed protocol for any patient who tests positive for any viral burden, I do most often, dare I say it 95% of the time, use humic acid. H-U-M-I-C, humic acid, which has been sourced from a specific geographic location on the planet. Um, And that's particular ancient compost. So it's 50 to 100,000-year-old compost. And it's basically... See freshwater, freshwater plants that have been turned to compost and compressed, and usually it's found on the side of a, an ancient, a coal mine, for example, so, got, so it's down it's down in the earth's crust. The earth dug out, it's also sterilized, um, and the nanoparticles of this humic acid, this ancient compost, have an amazing affinity for binding onto the viral bits, the virions that would transfer the viral material into the next door neighboring cell when that cell and turns over. So humic acid, it's cell membrane active. It binds to, it has a stronger affinity for binding to that viral bit that would then translocate to the next door cell than the cell has strength to go to the next door cell. So the affinity for humic acid to bind to this virus is, is very good and inhibits, according to Richard Lau, who's a, is a, a pro, ex-professor of chemistry whom I met in, in Southern California actually, he reckons, and he's estimated with his studies that it's actually active against all known viruses. Full stop. So Where can I use human cancer, um, and it can be very, it can be very effective. Um, and I also would use something that might have a more direct impact. So that has like a passive binding effect of viruses, and I might use another antiviral agent. And there are a number to choose from, such as olive leaf extract or elderberry extract, echinacea, calendula, garlic, astragalus, cat's claw, ginger, licorice root, or even oregano oil extract. I would typically use olive leaf extract as my favorite choice as, the, as, a, as, a, um, as a co-supplement antiviral with the humic acid. And the olive leaf has a more direct effect against viruses. So I typically would use those two And I use those too a lot, but it wouldn't necessarily all the time. And certainly over time, I would look to vary and possibly rotate those particular antiviral agents. So I found those to be particularly useful.
2: Where do you get the humic acid?
3: Humic acid is available from a company in uh, North America in California called Allergy Research Group, Um, and they make a humic acid cell membrane active, I think is the name of the product, in fact, humic acid. Now, I use that in the U.K., Um, so Allergy Research is humic acid. It comes from Richard Lau's source, and it's, it's not all humic acid and not all fulvic acid, which is very similar to humic acid. Not all humic acid is as effective against viruses as other Humic acids. So I discovered from Richard having this great conversation with Richard Lau, um who's this pro- ex professor of chemistry, and he was telling me he actually assessed different humic acids from different parts of the world, from different coal mines in Birmingham in England, South Africa, um, other places in America, and he found that it's the fresh water plants the ancient ones 50 to 100,000 years ago where the fresh water was and that is now compost that has the most effective antiviral effect so not all humic acid is the same as other humic acid which is more of a generic term for a, a, a type of substance and so I, I effectively obtain that from allergy research group.
2: And what uh, companies do you recommend for some of these other antivirals like the yeah. olive leaf extract yeah. etc? Yeah.
3: Good question in fact the uh uh, olive leaf extract. I also they have a, a patented form of effective olive leaf extract that allergy research again. So it's, it's quite convenient because I use those two from the same company: olive leaf extract and humic acid from the same company. Um, if I may just move on just to the bacteria where I, I'd find chlamydia pneumoniae and mycoplasma pneumoniae, I have found particularly with the chlamydia pneumonia, which is a, which is a very challenging bacteria to, to deal with. It, it can, it can hu- effectively hide from the immune system um, and or from being dealt with. And so it's a chronic low-grade infection. And someone may never have remembered that they had a chest infection. And the chlamydia pneumonia could be in all tissues in the body. I found a, an, an emulsified, sustained-release oregano, or as they say in America, oregano oil extract. It's called ADP oregano. And it's from a company in Houston called Biotics Research. I found that to be the single most effective antibacterial agent I've used in 26 years. So I'm a huge fan of that remedy. And it, it really does save, um, if you like, making more, you know, just trying to find something else that works or, or trying to find something else that works alongside it. So. It's my mainstay for the bacterial issue. It has a small effect on a number of viruses, but really, it's, its main effect is that it's antibacterial effect. So, organo extract from Biotics Research and the humic acid and olive leaf extract from Allergy Research. They're the ones I typically use most often.
2: So, um, one can, uh, the listener can just uh, try these various remedies and probably hit a lot of their problems. Right.
3: You know, uh, I believe that's true. I'd always recommend that they get, they get professional advice because things are complex and they might need some other support as well. And it's pretty rare that I would, I would only ever use the antiviral or the antibacterial, depending on what's what. Um, and I would always, pretty much always, engage them in dietary change where appropriate, lifestyle change where appropriate, are they getting enough sleep, is the sleep pattern okay, do they need to avoid certain foods other than gluten or dairy, which are very common. So, uh, sure, individuals can do that, absolutely. I don't see there's an issue. It's not like taking a medication or a drug, but certainly there could be uh, what's called like die-off or Herxheimer symptoms where the body has a challenge in handling maybe the die-off of the burden or clearing of a bacteria or a virus because most of these things actually produce more toxins when they're dying or when they're being cleared than when they're alive, and that could put a challenge on the body. So, sure, individuals can, can su- support themselves in this way, um, but I would typically recommend they seek some help um, so they can understand the process that they're going through better. I'd I also typically look to support individuals' innate immune system at the same time. So it's it's uh, more more sophisticated possibly than just the pill for the ill, i.e. the humic acid for the virus or the ADP organa for the bacteria, but I certainly wouldn't want people to stop engaging in it themselves, that's for sure.
2: So how would you support the innate immune system?
3: Very good question. The innate immune system, um, as, as I think you know, It's estimated, depending on which source you read, 60 to 80%, but maybe it's estimated 70% of the whole of the immune cells line our gut lining. So it's our inner tube. And really, I think logically speaking, that's where we meet the universe. That's where we meet our food that we eat. And in fact, there's a stunning statistic, which if you're sitting down, folks, you can appreciate this one. There are more immune decisions made inside the gut on one day of your life there are more immune decisions taken in your gut in one day of your life than are taken in the whole of your body for the whole of your life. Wow. So the phenomenon, and so the mucosal the mucosal innate immune system has received a lot of attention research-wise, certainly over the last decade compared to the previous two decades, and secretory IgA, is the most abundant immunoglobulin by tenfold compared to any other, and it's the only immune response that's non-inflammatory. So improving secretory IgA, our front-line defence within our gut mucosa, it's not linked to the blood IgA either. There's no link. There's no correlation really. So it's secretory. So it's our goblet cells. So it's in the gut lining. We we make secretory IgA, and you can promote that with a very special probiotic yeast called, the generic name is Saccharomyces boulardii. Now, Saccharomyces refers to yeast, and boulardii this actually refers to Dr. Henry Boulard, a Frenchman, and the double I on the end is the Latin genitive. Uh, being English, of course, I was forced to learn Latin when I was younger, so I was aware of the, gr- the grammatic. So Dr. Henry Boulard discovered this yeast that supports secretory IgA, and from there on, the yeast is specifically called Saccharomyces boulardii, and it can pr- it promotes secretory IgA and supports the innate immune system more than any other probiotic. It's a probiotic yeast, effectively.
2: Wow. A lot of good information there. Yeah. So
3: now, yeah, yeah. Colostrum probiotics and, and vitamins A and D are also very important for innate immunity as well.
2: And vitamin A especially, that's one that's a little bit underrated, I believe.
3: I completely agree with you. In fact, what's fascinating, look at the history of things, as I, I've had the time to do. The original name for vitamin A was called the epithelial nutrient. So before it, the nomenclature and the categories of vitamins appeared, they discovered nutrients, and it was called the epithelial nutrient, which, of course, is the inner skin. So it's the it's the most important nutrient for skin healing. Vitamin A. And it, it is often overlooked, particularly if one's taking vitamin D in uh, large amounts. There are some of the receptors for vitamin A and D are the same receptor. So if you flood the body with vitamin D, because that's what the world's gone a little bit of vitamin D crazy, maybe it's a good thing, certainly, to get your vitamin D up to optimal. But by doing that, you actually risk creating a, a lesser level of vitamin A in your body.
2: Wow. So, how can we get vitamin A? Just a carrot with the skin each day, or how's a Um, good way? The carrot
3: contains beta-carotene. Now, it's interesting, in Europe, I don't know the U.S. statistics, about 40% of the population in Europe don't have the ability, the gene, to convert the beta-carotene to vitamin A. So, vitamin A is a fat-soluble nutrient, and retinol is the name of vitamin A. And so, you can get it from cod liver oil, which is unprocessed fish oil. Otherwise, all processed fish oils won't have vitamin A in it, and you want the... The natural form of vitamin A, which is called the cyst form, and that reflects the natural chemical shape of the vitamin A. So the cis form vitamin A will be in cod liver oil. It will also be in the, in liver, which is not something that we necessarily want to eat too much, but liver is the richest source of vitamin A known to man. Hence, um, it's not recommended that pregnant women eat lots of liver uh, while they're pregnant, maybe once or twice, but not, not regularly. Um, and vitamin A is also in certain forms of uh, full-fat butter and full-fat dairy products, because it's in the fat. It's a fat-soluble nutrient. Uh, but uh, there are many, there's a big percentage, relatively speaking, of individuals who cannot convert the carotenoids or be the carotene to vitamin A, and those individuals may require a fat soluble form. Now, fascinatingly, if you have grated carrot with avocado, you get to convert and you get to use the vitamin A five fold more than if you didn't have it with the avocado. Fascinating, isn't it?
2: Wait, so that means that. Uh, it, uh, Taking the skin off the carrot, you get more
3: vitamin A? No, forget the skin. I'm not talking about the skin. You just have the the, beetroot, the, the carrot with the avocado. You're going to get more vitamin A as a result of and having avocado. it with the avocado.
2: So carrot and avocado sounds like a good daily regimen.
3: Yeah, I you know. And um, I hesitate to do things daily because I like to mix it up and have rotation. But I would say Monday, Wednesday, Friday, carrot and avocado is good.
2: Great. And do you keep the skin on the
3: carrot or take the skin off? You know, most of the nutrients are found in the skin, but equally potentially most of the, the substances which also protect the, the plant from, veg, from insects and being eaten are also in the skin, so it, it's a, it's a moot point. But certainly organic veggies, which I mostly get, I would tend to wash them, and then, then eat the skin as well because they're the richest source. But, um, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure that you're missing out a huge amount. If you're having a nine cups of veggies or six cups of veggies a day, I think um, there wouldn't be too much of an issue if you were to take the skin off.
2: Okay. So as I understand this, the spot test can measure your progress in reducing the inflammatory burden in those particular bugs.
3: The other spot Test absolutely will, t- will should go down after a period of time of inhibiting those bugs. Um, and so so a month, two months, three months later, and usually I'll wait for about three months um, for repeating the Ellispot testing rather than the antibody testing. The antibody testing, if you were to have complete dormancy of a virus, it might take three months after that before the antibodies go down. So it's a pretty inaccurate, well actually very frustrating and actually very slow and not a very useful marker for ongoing measuring, of uh, the success of the program to inhibit the viruses or the bacteria for which there is an elispot test.
2: Wow, okay, this is very interesting. Uh, what other areas are you researching that you find interesting that you want to share?
3: Yeah, well, well I, I will share one more thing about, the, about promoting the efficacy of the, of the antiviral um, substances, and this is something that's based on, I did a sports science degree before I qualified in nutrition and then before I studied iridology as well Um, and I therefore had quite a a collection of patients who had sports injuries, essentially, and I found that the use of something called proteolytic enzymes, which are effectively digestive enzymes taken away from food, um, could really promote and reduce the inflammation in people's muscles and really help reduce inflammation and not, then not have the athlete resort to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which directly impede the healing of connective tissue, and they also damage the gut lining, and they also put a burden on the liver. So Those is fact, and they also are not good for the heart in the long term so there's no doubt about these things and in fact there are 20,000 hospitalizations in England a year from taking these non-steroidal drugs and 20,000 deaths in the United States and that was some years ago from those, fig- those figures that were produced but I found these proteolytic enzymes they help to reduce systemic inflammation but they also help with autoimmune conditions it seems they can have some benefit at lysing breaking down the antibody complex in the bloodstream um, so they can reduce the inflammation that those things might then otherwise generate by latching onto a cell cell and instigating an inflammatory response. So prolytic enzymes taken away from food. Again, I I use a particular one. uh, I've worked long and hard to try and find the best one. Biotics Research, the company that makes the ADP oregano, make a fantastic prolytic enzyme called Intenzyme Forte. Um, And I found that uh, individuals taking that alongside the humic acid and or the olive leaf extract for example can actually have a, a more profound benefit. It seems to break down the, the proteins behind which the bacterial viruses might be hiding or, and it can also break down and neutralize in through an immunological way or through an actual physical breakdown manner, the antibody immune complexes. So I find a combination of my sports science background and helping athletes reduce their inflammation and combining that with the antimicrobials, it really makes them more effective. And I'm trying to think of a patient where I didn't recommend the enzymes. And basically I would say 90% of the patients I see um, are candidates for the enzyme therapy along with the humic acid and or the olive leaf. And I would look to rotate these things um, so it's not just one protocol for a period of time. Things might change over time. But I would say that if, if listeners can take on board the benefit of humic acid and olive leaf extract and possibly ADP oregano for the bacterial thing, then please acknowledge and please listen to the fact that proteolytic enzymes can really uh, exaggerate and magnify the benefits of those remedies. So uh, I I find that that's probably one of the most powerful tools in my toolkit.
2: This is very exciting to uh, uh, the role of infections, which is, you know, we know is there, but we haven't really focused on it as how to deal with it, how to approach it, how to measure it. Now we've got several good recommendations how we can, uh, you know, attack this particular uh, contributor to our disease process. Quite exciting. Absolutely.
3: And, and the, of course, the reason one of the reasons we don't know about these things is not because we, we've been sleeping. It's just that these things are hidden. Um, and I must admit that despite my 15 years of practice, I was really unaware of this connection, even though research was going on around me, but I wasn't I particularly reading it because I didn't have the professor to motivate wait, me to wait, look at that particular area as Professor okay, Ebring did wait, those wait,
1: years ago. Okay.
2: We've got to come to a close now. I didn't... Hmm. I was waiting for the signals, and I didn't see them here. Okay, we're coming to a close now, so I recommend you go out and do your own research, uh, and you know, check with your clinicians and your doctors, and find out more about this so you can help yourself and others. Be well. We got the
1: power.